Chapter One of the Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter One: Boyhood and Early Crime. I have been a professional thief for more than twenty years. Half of that time I have spent in state's prison, and the other half in grafting in one form or another. I was a good pickpocket and a fairly successful burglar, and I have known many of the best crooks in the country. I have left the business for good, and my reasons will appear in the course of this narrative. I shall tell my story with entire frankness. I shall not try to defend myself. I shall try merely to tell the truth. Perhaps in so doing I shall explain myself. I was born on the east side of New York City in 1868 of poor but honest parents. My father was an Englishman who had married an Irish girl and emigrated to America where he had a large family, no one of whom, with the exception of myself, went wrong. For many years he was an employee of Brown Brothers and Company and was a sober, industrious man and a good husband and kind father. To me, who was his favorite, he was perhaps too kind. I was certainly a spoiled child. I remember that when I was five years old, he bought me a $25 suit of clothes. I was a vigorous, handsome boy with red, rosy cheeks, and was not only the pet of my family, but the life of the neighborhood as well. At that time, which is as far back as I can remember, we were living on Monroe Street in the Seventh Ward. This was then a good residential neighborhood, and we were comfortable in our small wooden house. The people about us were Irish and German, the large Jewish immigration not having begun yet. Consequently, Lower New York did not have such a strong business look as it has now, but was cleanly and respectable. The gin mills were fewer in number and were comparatively decent. When the Jews came they started many basement saloons or cafes, and for the first time, I believe, the social evil began to be connected with the drinking places. I committed my first theft at the age of six. Older heads put me up to steal money from the till of my brother's grocery store. It happened this way. There were several much older boys in the neighborhood who wanted money for rowboating in theaters. One was 18 years old, a ship caulker, and another was a roustabout of 17. I used to watch these boys practice singing and dancing in the big marble lots in the vicinity. How they fired my youthful imagination! They told me about the theaters then in vogue, Tony Pastor's, The Old Globe, Woods Museum, and Josh Hart's Theater Comique, afterwards owned by Harrigan and Hart. One day, George, the roustabout, said to me, Kid, do you want to go rowboating with us? When I eagerly consented, he said it was too bad, but the boat cost 50 cents and he only had a 10-cent stamp, a small paper bill. In those days, there was very little silver in circulation. I did not bite at once. I was so young and they treated me to one of those wooden balls fastened to a rubber string that you throw out and catch on the rebound, I was tickled to death. I shall never forget that day as long as I live. It was a Saturday, and all day long those boys couldn't do too much for me. Towards evening they explained to me how to rob my brother's till. They arranged to be outside the store at a certain hour, and wait until I found an opportunity to pass the money to them. My mother watched in the store that evening, but when she turned her back, I opened the till and gave the eight or ten dollars it contained to the waiting boys. We all went rowboating and had a jolly time. But they were not satisfied with that. What I had done once, I could do again, and they held out the theater to me and pretended to teach me how to dance the clog. Week in and week out, I furnished them with money, and in recompense they would sometimes take me to a matinee. What a joy! How I grew to love the vaudeville artists with their songs and dances and the wild Bowery melodramas. 
It was a great day for Indian plays, and the number of Indians I have scalped in imagination after one of these shows is legion. Some of the small boys, however, who did not share in the booty, grew jealous and told my father what was doing. The result was that a certain part of my body was sore for weeks afterwards. My feelings were hurt too, for I did not know at the time that I was doing anything very bad. My father, indeed, accompanied the beating with a sermon, telling me that I had not only broken God's law, but had robbed those that loved me. One of my brothers, who is now a policeman in the city service, told me that I had taken my ticket for the gallows. The brother I had robbed, who afterwards became a truckman, patted me on the head and told me not to do it again. He was always a good fellow. And yet, they all seemed to like to have me play about the streets with the other little boys, perhaps because the family was so large and there was not much room in the house. So I had to give up the till. But I hated to, for even at that age I had begun to think that the world owed me a living. To get revenge, I used to hide in a charcoal shed and throw pebbles at my father as he passed. I was indeed the typical bad boy and the apple of my mother's eye. When I couldn't steal from the till anymore, I used to take clothes from my relatives and sell them for theater money, or any other object I thought I could make away with. I did not steal merely for theater money, but partly for excitement, too. I liked to run the risk of being discovered. So I was up to any scheme the older boys proposed. Perhaps if I had been raised in the Wild West, I should have made a good trapper a cowboy instead of a thief. Or perhaps even bird's nests and fish would have satisfied me if they had been accessible. One of my biggest exploits as a small boy was made when I was eight years old. Tom's mother had a friend visiting her whom Tom and I thought we would rob. Tom, who was a big boy, and some of his friends put me through a hall bedroom window and I made away with a box of valuable jewelry. But it did me no good, for the big boys sold it to a woman who kept a second-hand store in Division Street, and I received no part of the proceeds. My greatest youthful disappointment came about four weeks later. A boy put me up to steal a box out of a wagon. I boldly made away with it and ran into a hallway where he was waiting. The two of us then went into his backyard, opened the box, and found a beautiful sword, the handle studded with little stones. But the other boy had promised me money, and here was only a sword. I cried for theater money, and then the other boy boxed my ears. He went to his father, who was a Freemason, and got a 50-cent stamp. He gave me two three-cent pieces and kept the rest. I shall never forget that injustice, as long as I live. I remember it as plainly as if it happened yesterday. We put the sword under a mill in Cherry Street, and it disappeared a few hours later. I thought the boy and his father had stolen it, and told them so. I got another beating, but I believe my suspicion was correct, for the Freemason used to give me a ten-cent stamp whenever he saw me, to square me, I suppose. When it came to contests with boys of my own size, I was not so meek, however. One day, I was playing in Jersey, in the backyard of a boy friend's house. He displayed his penknife, and it took my fancy. I wanted to play with it, and asked him to lend it to me. He refused, and I grabbed his hand. He plunged the knife into my leg. I didn't like that, and told him so, not in words, but in action. I remember that I took his ear nearly off with a hatchet. I was then eight years old. About this time, I began to go to Sunday school, with what effect on my character remains to be seen. One day, I heard a noted priest preach. I had one dollar and eighty cents in my pocket, which I had stolen from my brother. I thought that each coin in my pocket was turning red hot because of my anxiety to spend it. 
While the good man was talking to the blessed one, I was inwardly praying for him to shut up. He had two beautiful pictures, which he intended to give to the best listener among the boys. When he had finished his talk, he called me to him, gave me the pictures, and said, It's such boys as you, who when they grow up, are a pride to our holy church. A year later I went to the parochial school, but did not stay for long, for they would not have me. I was a skeptic at seven and an agnostic at eight, and I objected to the prayers every five minutes. I had no respect for ceremonies. They did not impress my imagination in the slightest, partly because I learned at an early age to see the hypocrisy of many good people. One day, half a dozen persons were killed in an explosion. One of them I had known. Neighbors said of him, what a good man is gone. And the priest and my mother said he was in heaven. But he was the same man who had often told me not to take money from the money drawer, for that was dangerous, but to search my father's pockets when he was asleep. For this advice I had given the rascal many a dollar. Ever after that I was suspicious of those who were over-virtuous. I told my mother I did not believe her and the priest, and she slapped my face and told me to mind my catechism. Everything mischievous that happened at the parochial school was laid to my account, perhaps not entirely unjustly. If a large firecracker exploded, it was James. That was my name. If someone sat on a bent pin, the blame was due to James. If the class tittered, Teacher Nolan would rush at me with a hickory stick and yell, It's you, you devil's imp! And then he'd put the question he had asked a hundred times before, Who made you? I was finally sent away from the parochial school because I insulted one of the teachers, a Catholic brother. I persisted in disturbing him whenever he studied his catechism, which I believed he already knew by heart. This brother's favorite, by the way, was a boy who used to say his prayers louder than anybody else. I met him fifteen years afterwards in state prison. He had been settled for vogel grafting, that is, taking little girls into hallways and robbing them of their gold earrings. He turned out pretty well, however, in one sense, for he became one of the best shoemakers in Sing Sing. Although, as one can see from the above incidents, I was not given to veneration, yet in some ways I was easily impressed. I always loved old buildings, for instance. I was baptized in the building which until lately was the Germania Theater, and which was then a church, and that old structure always had a strange fascination for me. I used to hang about old churches and theaters, and preferred on such occasions to be alone. Sometimes I sang and danced all by myself in an old music hall and used to pore over the names marked in lead pencil on the walls. Many is the time I have stood at night before some old building which has since been razed to the ground, and even now I like to go around to their sites. I like almost anything that is old, even old men and women. I never loved my mother much until she was an old woman. All stories of the past interested me, and later, when I was in prison, I was specially fond of history. After I was dismissed from the parochial school, I entered the public school, where I stayed somewhat longer. There I studied reading, writing, arithmetic, and later grammar, and became acquainted with a few specimens of literature. I remember Longfellow's Excelsior was a favorite of mine. I was a bright, intelligent boy, and, if it had not been for conduct, in which my mark was low, I should always have had the gold medal, in a class of seventy. I used to play truant constantly and often went home and told my mother that I knew more than the teacher. She believed me, for certainly I was the most intelligent member of my family. 
Yes, I was more intelligent than my parents or any of my brothers and sisters. Much good it has done me. Now that I've squared it, I see a good deal of my family, and they're all happy in comparison with me. On Saturday nights, I often go around to see my brother, the truckman. He's come home tired from his week's work, but happy with his $12 salary and the prospect of a holiday with his wife and children. They sit about in their humble home on a Saturday night with their pint of beer, their songs, and their jovial stories. Whenever I'm there, I am, in a way, the life of the party. My repartee is quicker than that of the others. I sing gayer songs, and am jollier with the working girls who visit my brother's free home. But when I look at my stupid brother's quiet face and calm and strong bearing, and then realize my own shattered health and nerves and profound discontent, I know that my slow brother has been wiser than I. It's taken me many years on the rocky path to realize this truth. For by nature, I am an Ishmaelite, that is, a man of impulse, and it is only lately that wisdom has been knocked into me. Certainly I did not realize my fate when I was a kid of ten, filled with contempt for my virtuous and obscure family. I was overflowing with spirits and arrogance and began to play hooky so often that I practically quit school about this time. It was then, too, that we moved again, this time to Cherry Street, to the wreck of my life. At the end of the block on which we lived was a corner saloon, the headquarters of a band of professional thieves. They were known as the Old Border Gang, and among them were several well-known and successful crooks. They used to pass our way regularly, and boys older than I, and my boy companions always had the advantage of me in years, used to point the famous guns out to me. When I saw one of these great men pass, my young imagination was fired with the ambition to be as he was. With what eagerness we used to talk about Juggy and the daring robbery committed in Brooklyn. How we went over again and again in conversation the trick by which Johnny the Grafter had fooled the detective in the matter of the bonds. We would tell stories like these by the hour and then go around to the corner to try to get a look at some of the celebrities in the saloon. A splendid sight one of these swell grafters was as he stood before the bar or smoked his cigar on the corner. Well-dressed, with clean linen collar and shirt, a diamond in his tie, an air of ease and leisure all about him, what a contrast he formed to the respectable hod-carrier or truckman or mechanic, with soiled clothes and no collar. And what a contrast was his dangerous life to that of the virtuous laborer. The result was that I grew to think the career of the grafter was the only one worth trying for. The real prizes of the world I knew nothing about. All that I saw of any interest in me was crooked, and so I began to pilfer right and left. There was nothing else for me to do. Besides, I loved to treat those older than myself. The theater was a growing passion with me, and I began to be very much interested in the baseball games. I used to go to the Union Grounds in Brooklyn, where after the third inning I could usually get admitted for 15 cents to see the old athletics and mutuals play. I needed money for these amusements for myself and other boys, and I knew it practically only one way to get it. If we could not get the money at home, either by begging or stealing, we would tap tills, if possible, in the store of some relative, or tear brass off the steps in the halls of flats and sell it at junk shops. A little later, we used to go to Grand Street and steal shoes and women's dresses from the racks in the open stores and pawn them. In the old Seventh Ward, there used to be a good many silver plates on the doors of private houses. These we would take off with chisels and sell to metal dealers. We had great fun with a Dutchman who kept a grocery store on Cherry Street. 
We used to steal his strawberries and did not care whether he saw us or not. If he grabbed one of us, the rest of the gang would pelt him with stones until he let go and then all run around the corner before the copper came into sight. All this time, I grew steadily bolder and more desperate, and the day soon came when I took consequences very little into consideration. My father and mother sometimes learned of some exploit of mine, and a beating would be the result. I still got the blame for everything, as in school, and was sometimes punished unjustly. I was very sensitive, and this would rankle in my soul for weeks, so that I stole harder than ever. And yet I think that there was some good in me. I was never cruel to any animals, except cats. For cats I used to tie the tails together and throw them over a clothesline to dry. I liked dogs, horses, children, and women, and have always been gentle to them. What I really was, was a healthy young animal with a vivid imagination and a strong body. I learned early to swim and fight and play baseball. Dime and nickel novels always seemed very tame to me. I found it much more exciting to hear true stories about the grafters at the corner saloon, big men, with whom as yet I did not dare to speak. I could only stare at them with awe. I shall never forget the first time I ever saw a pickpocket at work was when I was about 13 years old. A boy of my own age, Zack, a great pal of mine, was with me. Zack and I understood one another thoroughly and well knew how to get theater money by petty pilfering, but of real graft we were as yet ignorant, although we had heard many stories about the operations of actual professional thieves. We used to steal rides in the cars which ran to and from the Grand Street ferries and run off with overcoats and satchels when we had a chance. One day, we were standing on the rear platform when a woman boarded the car, and immediately behind her a gentlemanly-looking man with a high hat. He was well-dressed and looked about thirty-five years old. As the lady entered the car, the man, who stayed outside on the platform, pulled his hand away from her side, and with it came something from her pocket, a silk handkerchief. I was on the point of asking the woman if she had dropped something, when Zack said to me, "'Mind your own business!' The man, who had taken the pocketbook along with the silk handkerchief, seeing that we were next, gave us the handkerchief and four dollars in ten and fifteen cent paper money, stamps. Zack and I put our heads together. We were wiser than we had been a half an hour before. We had learned our first practical lesson in the world of graft. We had seen a pickpocket at work, and there seemed to us no reason why we should not try the game ourselves. Accordingly, a day or two afterwards, we arranged to pick our first pocket. We had indeed often taken money from the pockets of our relatives, but that was when the trousers hung in the closet or over a chair, and the owner was absent. This was the first time we had hunted in the open, so to speak, the first time our prey was really alive. It was an exciting occasion. Zack and I, who were wise, that is, up to snuff, got several other boys to help us, though we did not tell them what was doing, for they were not buried yet, that is, dead or ignorant. We induced five or six of them to jump on and off the rear platform of a car, making as much noise and confusion as possible, so as to distract the attention of any sucker that might board. Soon, I saw a woman about to get on the car. My heart beat with excitement, and I signaled to Zack that I would make the touch. In those days, women wore big sacks with pockets in the back, open, so that one could look in and see what was there. I took the silk handkerchief on the run, and with Zack following, went up a side street and gloried under a lamppost. 
In a corner of the handkerchief, tied up, were five two-dollar bills, and for weeks I was J.P. Morgan. For a long time, Zack and I felt we were the biggest boys on the block. We boasted about our great touch to the older boys of 18 and 19 years of age who had pointed out to us the grafters at the corner saloon. They were not in it now. They even condescended to be treated to a drink by us. We spent the money recklessly, for we knew where we could get more. In this state of mind, soon after that, I met the pick whom we had seen at work. He had heard of our achievement and kindly staked us, and gave us a few private lessons in picking pockets. He saw that we were promising youngsters, and for the sake of the profession gave us a little of his valuable time. We were proud enough to be taken notice of by this great man. We felt that we were rising in the world of graft, and began to wear collars and neckties. End of chapter 1